uh, Luke chapter 18. What we want to do is just get our flow here. In Luke 18, what's happening is set the scene. Jesus is going to get in a hot conversation about divorce and remarriage. And it's going to become a hot topic. And they're saying this and they're trying to trip him up to get him in a lot of trouble. And so it's interesting how he responds. We'll want to deal with that a little bit. But let's set up our scene. It's the last days just before he, has, he gets to Jerusalem for that final Passover and his final passion. And as he's headed there, he, is, um, he has just weeks before gone into Jerusalem, preached. The people got very upset. John chapter 10, they tried to stone him. He left the area, went across into Perea and stayed there for a while. Comes back, heals Lazarus, raises him from the dead. Lazar- and Bethany, where Lazarus was, real close to Jerusalem. Rumor spread. News spreads. He has healed, raised Lazarus. He leaves and goes up north into Galilee uh, to get away from the Jews once again down south. And he joins in some pilgrim groups as, that are headed back for Passover. So he crosses the Jordan. He's back on the east side of Jordan, coming down towards Perea. He's going to stop in and out of Jewish villages, other villages that he's going to teach. He's going to have a final uh, campaign, if you would, where he's sharing the word of God and talking to people. And during this time that he's headed south, he does a lot of teaching. This, this last couple of weeks of his life, there is the majority of, uh, I shouldn't say it that way, the, um, there is no other time period that gets as much gospel press as this two-week period where there's a lot of details of what he taught, what he did, and what happens to him in those final two weeks. This is when he is traveling back, he runs into the ten lepers. This is when he gets into some hot topic discussions. We already talked about one of them last week, the week before, that was about the king He's starting to get into a conversation about the kingdom and says the kingdom is going to be delayed. He's talked about that. And right from that moment of saying the kingdom's delayed, he talks about prayer. That makes perfect sense. Because he's telling the disciples that you need to pray. And because I'm not setting up my kingdom right now, you're going to be left behind. You're going to have to do things when I am going to go to Jerusalem where I'm going to die. They don't understand that. They're upset by that. But he's preparing them. What do they need to do when he's gone? They need to be praying. They need to be praying. They need to be praying. And so he's going to make it very clear that every disciple, their duty is to pray during this time when he is gone. And it's the interim between his first coming, his second coming. You got to be praying. Got to be praying always, not faint. That's where he starts off in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. That's the setting. He's preparing them. And he gives them two stories or two parables. The one is about the unjust judge that the widow goes to. We talked about this last time. This woman in the story is not listened to by this judge. And the reason is, these it's several reasons. She's a woman, she's a widow, she's poor, she's a stranger, she doesn't have an insider. And understanding the court system of that day, bribery was the key. Having, having someone defend you or to, to uh, plead your case was very important. The judge listens to her after she just absolutely just persists, persists, persists. And so the point is, be persistent in prayer. That's the only part of this story that he's emphasizing. He's not talking and comparing God to an unjust judge and saying they're similar. But his point is, persistence pays off. If it pays off with a selfish judge, how much more will persistence pay off when you have a godly father, who are a, a, a loving father in God that wants to help you out? And so that's his point. Then he shifts to another parable about prayer, one that you're very familiar with. Jump, in, jump with me in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. There's your setting that'll indicate 
That'll indicate what his message is. Okay? Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee said and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you, I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican nearby. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but rather smote his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, now this is Jesus' observation. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be non-exalted or abased. He that humbles himself shall be exalted. His point is really, really clear. And again, Jesus is talking. He's going to be attacking through this story people who are self-righteous. The disciples are going to glean from this that when it comes to prayer, they ought not to pray this way. The Pharisee in the story, if you were to describe him, what would you say about the Pharisee? Okay, he's proud. Anything else? Self-righteous. Anything else? He's a hypocrite? Why would you say that? Okay, okay, very good. Anything else? Is he critical? Is he hypercritical of other people? Okay, right. So we would took down several thoughts. Okay, he's taking the posture of standing to be seen. Okay, being in a being in a spot where, which is very typical of the Pharisees, he's boasting when he's praying, self righteous. Now again, I mentioned this last week. He says, "I fast twice and I tithe of everything." Understand that according to the Old Testament that you have. Okay, the inspired Old Testament where it gave rules. Did they have to fast twice a week? No. It was twice a year for different feast days. Where did this twice a week fasting come up? Do you remember? It's, it's a week. I know it's tough. It was a week ago last week we talked about this. It was their own rules. Remember, the, the Pharisees wrote additional rules to the Old Testament. And then they said these rules were as authoritative as Leviticus and Deuteronomy because God inspired us to write this and therefore what we wrote. And that's where they got a lot of their Sabbath rules. That's where they got a lot of their other rules about tithing, their other rules about, um, about praying. So they add to the Bible to make themselves look better. Uh, and so that's where they get this from. Uh, they, he did not ask for anything. I think that's a, an interesting observation. He's not going with a dependence at all before God. He's just, okay, I'm, I'm satisfied. I'm doing well all by myself. He's critical of others. He is not justified before God. Okay, and so it's very clear. Now, the flip side of it is the publican. We would say he's humble. There's other things that would highlight that. He stood afar off. He kept his eyes low. He's bowing his head. He's praying with repentance. He's praying for forgiveness. He's beating his breast, which was at that time a sign of remorse. He's not comparing himself with others. There's humility. And we would conclude that obviously this is what Jesus is driving at. When we pray, there needs to be a spirit of humility. Humility is seen by dependence. Humility is seen by confession. Humility is seen by a love for others, even in our prayer. And so Jesus's point in this parable is really simple. If you were to define this for a third grade Sunday school class, what would you tell those kids? This is what Jesus is teaching. They need to what? Need to pray. What else with those third graders? 
Okay, they need to be humble. That's his point. His point is real simple. It's very, very clear. And so let's make some observations. From these parables, we conclude this. Jesus knows the hearts of people when they pray. We can't hide. Okay, we know this. In view of the delay in setting up the kingdom, God would have us pray regularly. We've already mentioned that. Let's repeat that again. Okay, that we're supposed to be praying. We're in this period where we're in that delay of full-fledged kingdom. We have some aspects here. We have the spiritual aspect, the Holy Spirit. Spirit. We have the, some of the kingdom rules of how to treat one another. But in that meantime, before the physical kingdom is set up, we're supposed to be given, our, given to prayer. Prayer is vital to live godly as we wait for that kingdom. We can't live godly without prayer. God willingly wants to answer our prayers, but at times he delays his answers. Why would God delay answers if he wants to bless us with the answer? Why would he delay Okay, one could be to help us to draw closer to him. Okay, any other reason he might delay? Okay, he might know what we really need. Not only what we need, but when we need that, right? There might be a better timing. What did you say? That there was a better time. Okay. And so there's those, those potential reasons. At those times, Christ wants his disciples to continue in prayer without failure or weariness. And so pray, pray, prayer, show, pray, show that dependence. To pray effectively, the point he is saying there needs to be a spirit of humility and contrition. Contrition has the idea of, of seeking forgiveness. That shouldn't surprise us because remember in the Lord's Prayer, what does he say? Give us this day our daily bread. That's one of the requests. And then forgive, forgive us, our, forgive us our debts or trespasses as we forgive. Okay, the debtors, those who trespass against us, however rendering you want it. And so there's that spirit, again, that he mentions in the Lord's Prayer of there needs to be repentance, which is shown in, in that spirit of humility. We are not to be proud, uh, have a proud or critical spirit when we pray, uh, boasting of ourselves. In fact, instead of saying, oh man, I'm not as bad as that person right there, what would be the better way to say it? There go, there go I, but for the grace of God. Yeah. 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 Who is it? Um, Spurgeon or Moody? One of these guys that, that they had been held up, robbed by a street, street thief. And their comment afterwards is, I walked away and I was so thankful, one, for my life that it wasn't taken. And number two, that, um, that by grace, I'm not, I'm not doing the robbing because I, I could in my spirit, in my heart, if I'm not careful. Now, Jesus, right after that, there's, according to what we understand, there's a series of questions that comes his way, okay? And so we're going to jump over to, let's see, let's go to Matthew chapter 19. That gives us the most detail of the conversation. Then we'll come back to Luke 18 when we get time to do that, if it allows today. Matthew 19 is picking up in that same spot. And he's going to get into this area of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. That for some of you, it makes no difference. For some of you, say, well, exactly what what did he say? Uh, And it says in verse 1, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he departs from Galilee, and and he says, he. Uh, it come to the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. Great multitudes are following him. He heals them. And the Pharisees also came unto him. What's your Bible read? Verse 3. 
tempting him and saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any or every cause? Okay, here we go. This is very important that you get the background information. Okay, Jesus is very popular. We understand that. The leaders don't like his popularity. The more popular he becomes, they want to kill him. They want to get rid of him. But what do you do to get rid of somebody who's popular? If you take out somebody who's real, real popular, what might you cause? Yeah, a real ruckus, a real riot. Or, or what, will you, what will happen to that person? They become a martyr. Their cause becomes even more popular. So they want to get Jesus, basically, if you're going to take Jesus out, I'm, I'm talking from a human perspective, political point of view. Take the person out at a low point of popularity. Okay, when they're kind of not news anymore. But this is tough because Jesus is the headline news. He's getting all the press and people love him. I mean, wouldn't you at that time take away your Christianity? But even if you were just a Jew living in that time period, wouldn't you love this guy? He's healing people. He's, doing, he's, he's putting the hypocritical leaders in their place. He's, he's just, everything about him is great and grand. To kill him outright would make them, that is the Jewish leaders, unpopular. So they want to get him, undermine and get rid of him. And so one of the ways you get rid of Jesus is make Jesus unpopular. Now, it doesn't happen in modern day America where people in political campaigns, they try to make the other one look unappealing. Okay, right. Because in America, they only talk about the issues. Okay, right? What do they go after? Personality. Okay, and they try to point out. And so they're going to do the same thing. They're going to pick an issue that is, you know, going to, going to make, it could make Jesus really unpopular with people. And so they're going to talk about marriage and divorce. Because of the sense and the, the concepts that were going through people's mind. And remember, marriage and divorce, this whole thing was what got John in trouble, where John lost his head, where Herod kills him because Jesus calls out John, uh, I'm sorry, uh, John calls out Herod because of his adultery and his, his uh, taking his brother's wife after they had been divorced. And so John had gotten in trouble. And remember, politics works this way that if they can get him, Jesus to say something and Herod get mad, well then Herod might get rid of Jesus. That'd make it all the easier. So they're bringing a question to him and the purpose of this question is not for information, it's to tempt. But when Jesus is asked, he's going to get information. He's going to give it out. And he gives some really fabulous information. To understand what he says, when he says it, you have to understand the views at that time. I alluded to this last week, that um, in this world, when it comes to the Greek and the Roman world, divorce was real free. It could happen most all the time. Both men and women could initiate the divorce. Remarriage was very common. And so it wasn't that rare. It wasn't that unusual. The Jews had a more conservative view than the rest of the world at that time. Now you might not think it's conservative, but compared to the rest of society, they were. They had a more limited view. Women could not initiate a divorce. In fact, they couldn't do anything legally to get a divorce. Um, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 and 2, you look it up, and it says that divorce is allowed if a man found some uncleanness in his wife. Now the discussion goes, what is uncleanness? And that's where the Jews had a real debate over these centuries, and that's where they wrote a lot of different writings trying to define what was uncleanness or indecency. By Jesus' day, there's two major views or schools of teaching. And these are the two big universities, if you would, where they trained the rabbis, where they trained the teachers. And one was more conservative than the other. One was Shimei, the other school of Hillel. So they were the big schools of that day. 
Okay, and they have, Shimei would be the more conservative institution in a lot of different views. Men could divorce their wives only if he found indecency and that they described as immorality. He could only divorce if there was immorality. And uh, so that's their point on this area. This is not a popular view. This is not a commonly accepted view. The reason being, it's too stringent. It's too strict. It's it's taking away people's freedoms. It's not letting people to operate the way they want to operate. Besides, if you don't love, why should you be stuck with somebody that you don't care for? And so it was a very unpopular view. Hillel was the more liberal university. Hillel taught on the marriage and divorce that if they found any indecency and then the passage goes on and says and no favor in his eyes and they define this as saying okay this popular view they say that any good cause or shame that she brought and so in their writings called the Mishnah they defined indecency or no favor it means anything that was a good cause in the husband's mind, or if he, she shamed him in any way, shape, or form, he could then divorce her. So you've got two, two contrasting views. They both agree about divorce. They both say ladies can't do it, but the men can, but the reasons given are vastly different. In fact, let me, let me spell out what Hillel would say. Okay? The divorce for such things as bad cooking. Okay? If she burnt the food... Okay, and it didn't have to happen often. If her head was uncovered in public, she brought shame to the husband. Okay, um, if she would converse in public with men, other men, she's bringing shame to her husband. If, uh, if she brought shame by disrespecting his parents in, within his earshot. If she was quarrelsome, remember we mentioned this before, if you could hear her saying things that were nagging or quarrelsome outside the home, he could divorce her. If her lower legs were uncovered, that would bring shame. If her face, and they define this in the Mishnah, if her face is not appealing, okay, and they go a little bit further, if she's childless for 10 years, he could divorce her. If another woman is found more appealing, okay, um, so they made this really easy to get a divorce. And I want you to understand this. In this system, the ladies were, dom- uh, were basically subjugated. They were being dominated. They were being controlled. And by this concept, they were being really diminished. And so um, in, in this regard, when it came to divorce, it was a very free-for-all society. But, but you would understand, this would be popular with many people, Right? They liked this idea. And this was what's being taught in most of the synagogues. This is what most of the disciples have heard. This is what, you know, what was being said. There's a little bit more I want to add to it as we go along. But Jesus is, uh, you know, is being challenged. What do you believe? Now, if he opposes the popular view, he could lose his audience. That's what their thinking is. If he opposes the popular view, or if, he, or if he opposes even the most stringent view, wherever he goes, this could be a problem. If he opposes the popular view, he would go against the opinion of the society, and he could get himself in trouble with Herod. So he's got reasons to be politically correct. Okay, did you ever hear that term? Okay, do you ever, do you ever hear people not saying what they mean because they have to be politically correct? Okay, and so here's what you've got going on. And so there's a lot of pressure going on in this situation. And by the way, I think some of you feel this. I think some of you, when you get into conversations, you, you try and we do. 
And there's, there's, there's discerning at times to say, okay, I need to understand where my audience is. And so sometimes I, I want to say things in a way that doesn't, that doesn't create more problems. And I think there's wisdom and discernment in that. But when it comes to some things about Scripture, we just have to be, okay, this is what the Bible says, and we can't water it down. And so that's where Jesus is going to be. He's going to take that approach. And so Jesus is challenged. Is what do you think about marriage and divorce? Interesting how he responds. And you might, you might benefit from this, okay? Uh, when, you, when you answer different people who are challenging, trying to get you in trouble with different political views and, and popular opinions. Jesus responds in verse 4, have you not read? Okay? So he's going to take them back to what? What's going to be his answer? The Bible, the Old Testament, the scriptures that they all accept. And so he isn't going to base his opinion upon popular polling. He's going to base his opinion upon scripture. It's not the polls, it's the Bible. And so that's an important thought for us. He goes back to the very beginning of creation where marriage was started. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. You remember this passage? Okay, it is uh, not good that a man should be alone. I'll make a helpmeet for him. And it goes on to say, and he shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall become one. Okay, and so he goes back to that passage. So, by the way, what does that also do with creation? We, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Jesus, Jesus confirms there was a flood. Jesus confirms by saying, you remember what happened in the days of Noah? You know, I remember what happened in the days of Law. He confirms by going back and using them as illustrations that Sodom and Gomorrah happened. What is he just doing by going back here? He's taking us back to creation. And he's confirming in our mind that there wasn't evolution of male and female. There was creation of male and female, the woman from the man. And so he's confirming the Genesis 2 account, which theologically is very important for you and me. It's clear that Jesus believed this. He believes God started marriage. Okay? Because he goes on, he says in these comments, at the beginning, okay, he says that, have you not read, that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female. And said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife. They, sh- they too shall become one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together. What's your Bible read? Let no man put asunder. Okay, so God started marriage. That's his comment. God intended marriage to be permanent. That's the intent. Okay. The two become one. That means it's indivisible. Okay, and it's not just, this isn't just physical becoming one, the intimacy, but it's talking about the spiritual, the emotional as well. What God had joined together, no people should have the, have the uh, authority to be dividing. Marriage, now this is an important thought too, it goes right along with it, implied. Marriage did not make woman subservient to man, but they are mutual helpers with mutual rights. He's going to go on, he's going to explain this. Okay, that the Jews had said the ladies don't have a say in any of this. He's going to bring it out that ladies have to be protected as well and they're to be mutually working together in mutual rights. And so it's important what he's talking about here as he goes on and he continues answering. They respond by saying, okay, we, we accept that kind of. They say, but then why did, now look at your Bible. This is a very important phrase they use. Why did Moses then, what's your Bible read? Verse 7. Why did Moses then 
command to give a writing a divorce and to put her away. That's an important thought. You have to understand that in Jewish thinking at this time, there wasn't an option if there was any kind of indecency or immorality. They taught you have to divorce your wife. You have to put her away, which totally takes the burden off of the man. Oh, I don't have any choice in this. I mean, if there was something that, if there was something that went on in your marriage, let, let's, let's pretend the most hor- horrible thing. If there was something bad that went on, okay, would it take work to revive this, your marriage? Yes. yes, it would. It would take work and commitment. They're saying, oh, we don't have any choice. Because it's easier to walk away than to work at the marriage. True? Okay, I think that's true for all of us. There is mo- we've all had those moments, if we've been married beyond one day, we've all had those moments where it's like, yeah, what did I get myself into? Okay? And that, I understand, they might, that moment might be three seconds in your brain, it might be three days in your brain. Okay, but there's been those moments where there's challenges. And he's saying, now wait a minute, stop. Okay? Um, he's going to have to address this. Did God command a divorce? And that's not true, but they did. They did interpret it this way. And so they taught if there was adultery or anything indecent, and we've already given you the indecency, that the guy would say, oh, I can't help it. She's not lovely in my eyes anymore. She isn't good looking in my eyes anymore. Not like she used to be when she was 20. Okay? Now that we're in our 40s, 50s, and 60s, she's changed. Okay? By the way, how many people does that happen to? Okay. And ladies, what would you say about the guy? Exactly. Okay. Where did all your hair go? Or something. Okay. And they would say, well, we can't help it. We have to leave. We have no choice. Which, you know, does this remind you of anybody else all the way back in Genesis that tried to get out of doing wrong by blaming God? Do you remember? Yeah. At the very beginning, what did he say? It's the woman that yeah, okay. Same type of concepts going on here. These people focus now here, and this is, see if this isn't true in our society. They focus more on the right to divorce than the permanency of marriage. The discussion shifted more like, well, what are my rights to divorce? That's not the point Jesus is getting at. That's not what you should be talking about. You should be talking about exalting marriage, not looking for the escape hatch. But isn't that true in our society? There's more emphasis on the escape hatch than the endurance of the marriage. And so he's, he gets into it. He says, okay, it was true. Mary, divorce is allowed. He's going to make this very clear. And you and I have to accept that what he is saying and what Scripture says. He's going on. He's going to say Moses, and he's going to give information. Why was there a divorce allowed in the book of, of the law? He says in verse 8, the reason is... The hardness of your, your, your father's hearts. He's, now watch what he says. You tell me if you've got a different translation. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered. Do you have suffered? Do you, what other word do you have? Permitted. Okay, permitted, suffered you to put away your wives. Now that's different than what they just said. They said Moses gave us a command to put away your wives. And Jesus is saying... He permitted it. That's a huge difference, is it not? Okay, big difference. And, but, he's, but he is making it, he's, he's pointing out reality. It was allowed. 
There were cases, and he goes on and says, but from the beginning, that was not the way it was supposed to be. Okay? I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for, what do you have? Fornication. Anybody have something else? Okay. Sexual immorality is a very broad term. And shall marry another commits adultery, and whoso marries her which is put away doth commit adultery. Okay? So he's going to say, okay, Here's what happened. In history, because of the hardness of your hearts, because there is... And, and remember, remember the setting of when this was happening. The Jews were coming out of what, what territory? Back when the law was given. Where were they coming out of? Out of Egypt, okay? Did they marry with other different nationalities besides Jewish? Yes, they did, okay? And so the danger that he's saying, don't marry outside your nationality, because when you marry somebody, what comes along with that person? They're gods, they're idols, and so he warned about that. And um, it was very easy to all of a sudden say, well, I can get a divorce, and there was no restrictions. Egypt was not the purest of countries. Egypt didn't have a real strict uh, divorce laws that were given uh, during their period of time. So he is basically saying God allowed for divorce with exceptions. The reason that he allowed for it was to restrict the number of divorces. He made the cases. He's established law to restrict it, okay, not to encourage it, but rather to discourage it because it was so rampant. And so the idea is divorce was allowed because the hardness of your heart. So this is an interesting idiom, just for your information. In New Testament writings, in the, in the pre-New Testament writings, hardness of hearts was a descriptive term of non-Jews, Gentiles, pagans. And so he's saying, because you guys were acting when it came to marriage and divorce, just like the world acted. Your ancestors were very worldly. They weren't, they weren't following the, uh, the scriptures. They, they were more whatever the world says we can do. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to, I'm going to follow this restriction, okay, not to divorce except for sexual impurity. And so that's the idea of fornication. As he goes on, let me make an observation. If you were to turn to the Gospel of Mark, and this is, this is for our information here within this room. If you go to the Gospel of Mark, Mark doesn't say anything about the exception clause. Okay, Mark doesn't put it in there. That creates a whole bunch of people confusion. They say, oh, wait a minute. Jesus did not give an exception clause because I don't see it in Mark. Let me throw this out. Does every gospel record everything the same way? No, it doesn't. Why didn't Mark record this? Well, Mark is dealing with the Romans. When Mark wrote, he's writing to the Roman people. He is, doesn't record any of that section about the hardness of the heart because of what Deuteronomy, because they don't know Deuteronomy. They don't have that background. So he doesn't even engage in the area of the exception clause because you're dealing with a society that's even worse than the Jews as far as marriage and divorce. So Mark doesn't even get into that. That doesn't mean it doesn't come up later because Corinthians deals with it later when it's written and spread through the Gentile world. But Mark doesn't do that, okay? The, here's our point, okay? Is Jesus allows for divorce for reasons... Uh, oh, let's back up. If someone divorces for reasons other than immorality, uh, then, they, then if they remarry, they commit adultery. That's what he's saying. There is a legitimate divorce. There is a legitimate remarriage. Okay, now that's, he gives it as far as sexual impurity. 1 Corinthians 7 adds to it if somebody deserts their spouse. Okay, an unbeliever or somebody acting as an unbeliever deserts. Then there is legitimate divorce. There's legitimate remarriage that's allowed at that point. Again, these are allowed. They are not encouraged. Okay, they're permitted. They're not promoted. Does that make, it, does that make sense? 
Okay? He isn't saying you have to, you must. In fact, when there is even problems in the marriage, okay, what does he encourage in 1 Corinthians? You work at the marriage. Do everything you can to work at. So that's his counsel. That's what he is stating at this moment when he's teaching. The disciples heard this. Watch their response. Look at the stories. It keeps, continues. The disciples, verse 10. This is a male thing. This is definitely a male thing. The men say, well, if this is the case, you know, with a guy and his wife, then... Yeah. Why? Whoa. If I can't divorce her if she gets old, then it's better if I don't even. It's a male thing, okay? It's definitely a guy thing. Who's, who are the disciples looking after? They're looking after themselves. They're very, and why would they do that? These guys are born again. Why would they think it this way? Okay? You said they're Jews. Is that the, what do you mean by that? It's in their blood? That's, that's the point. They were raised this way. They were taught this. This has been their teaching for how many generations? In other words, these guys grew up on this. Does that ever happen in our society? That we Christians, when it comes to certain issues, moral, social issues, that we can be persuaded if we hear something long enough? Does that ever happen? Okay, statistics. Statistics. You know, those under 30, those who claim to be evangelical and under 30, how many of them say that abortions are wrong? Do you think it's the same number as those over 45? No. No, it's drastically changing. Why? Has the Bible changed? No, but what has happened? social pressure. You hear something long enough. Guess what's going to be the next issue? The next issue, that's the hot issue right now. It, the, the, the gay, lesbian, that whole discussion. Is it going to be more of an issue for the next generation? Yes. I mean, we're facing it, but they're going to be more persuaded that it's just... Mm-hmm. So the same thing has happened. So before we cast stones at the disciples, understand this is the way it works. Okay? That we, sometimes we live in the world, but we're not supposed to be of the world, but do we get persuaded? It does happen to us. It does happen to us. Okay? Um, in fact, I'll, I'll give you one that, that's shame on you and me. I'll give you one that, that's here. If there's a widow in trouble... There's a widow who's financially in trouble. What's our first reaction to that? What should she do? You need to check out your Social Security. You need to find out all those programs. Right? Because it's become such a part of our culture. Biblically speaking, if there's a widow in trouble, what should be the first response by the believers? We're supposed to rally to that. But our first reaction anymore is, you need to get somebody working on your case. We do that. Why is that? It's because we're so used to the government taking care of those people. That it's, it's become ingrained in our thinking as well. And so it happens to all of us. Okay? And we have to constantly be on guard to say, okay, does the Bible demand that I go a little bit further than what the culture? And, and you know, how does that, how, what's my responsibility? So the, the disciples... 
They're going to respond. It's better that we don't marry at all because this is so hard to live by. Remember, Jesus' teachings were contrary to what they've heard for years about being able to divorce. To them, singleness was hard. (laughs) Singleness is difficult, but it's better than being married in an unhappy relationship. Okay. My dad, his favorite quote was, you know, marriage is the next best thing. I'm sorry. Uh, Yeah, marriage is the next best thing to being single was his, uh, his cliche phrase all the time. Exalting singleness and putting down marriage and you know, whether we do it by humor or not, it's just, it has an impact on us. And so they're saying, you know, singleness was hard, but now it's better to remain single because if I can't divorce this woman as she gets old and she isn't as pleasing anymore, you know, then it's better we just stay single. Jesus approved of staying single. Now watch what he does. This is really interesting. Because back in Genesis, what did it say about singleness? He just referred to Genesis 2. What did Genesis 2 say about singleness? It is not good for a man to be alone. Okay, so we create woman. Now he's got to deal with this issue that says, okay, is that principle still true? The answer is yes. Okay, it's still true. Is it true that marriage is supposed to be permanent? That's the principle, yes? Yes? Are there exceptions to the permanency? He's just given an exception. Okay. Is there an exception to, single, to marriage, to remain single? Genesis says it is good for a man not to be alone. But are there exceptions to that rule? There are. And so he's going to deal with it. He says, all men cannot receive this saying. Okay. In other words, it doesn't work for most guys, most people. It doesn't work to be single. Save they to whom it is given. The idea is that this is a gift. Singleness can be a gift. Okay, that he talks about in, in, in Timothy's epistle, he talks about being gifted this way. And he goes on, he says, For there are some who are eunuchs, which were born so. Okay? There are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men. There are eunuchs that made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Okay, so some... There is no physical sexual arousal, desire because of nature, because of what's been done to them, what they've done to themselves. And so he is tying in here, he is tying the marriage relationship with the idea of the physical control of appetites, the physical appetites. That makes perfect sense, okay? Without being risque and without, you know, in a mixed company, what does he say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? If a man cannot control... It is better, well, basically he says, it is better to marry than to burn. What's he talking about in that text? He's talking about the physical appetites. Okay, and so in this text, in context, he's talking about the same thing. No surprise, because he's just talked about the, the breaking of a marriage is because of somebody's physical appetites. And so he's continuing on. He says, okay, singleness, he says, is not for everyone. And he goes on, he that is able to receive the singleness, let him receive it. Okay, and he, so he's defining for the disciples something that's an important thought. He noted that not all have this gift of singleness to be eunuchs or celibate. No, now, here's my point. I don't think you and I can make a definitive universal position for everyone else uh, as far as remaining single or marrying, okay, from these words. Okay, do you know what I mean by that? There are churches who have grabbed these words and said, every cleric, every clergyman must remain single. That's a universal, definitive statement. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. 
Okay, Jesus isn't saying everybody must marry. Everybody must remain single. He is making it clear that for some it applies this way and for some it applies that way. So it depends on who? The individual. It's very individually oriented and between them and God. And so he's making it very clear. His whole point is this. You guys are trying to trip me up with divorce and remarriage. Here's what I'm a position that I believe the scriptures teach. And he clarifies. Marriage is to be permanent. You're supposed to work at it. Is there a time where you are permitted to walk away and permitted to remarry? It's a legitimate time when there is a violation of the, uh, of the uh, uh, vows that you have made as far as you know, keeping yourself for that person alone. And then he goes on and says, what about being single? For some they can do it, for some they can't. So disciples, let's not get all you know, caught up with what the culture is saying at this point. It's an individual choice and ability. Let's make some observations, okay, that are very important. Observations about marriage, divorce. We need, and here's, here's a very important one when it comes to marriage and divorce. This is very, very important. You need to study all related passages that deal with this area of marriage and divorce. Is it easy to all of a sudden take a position on marriage, divorce, for instance, that one, marriage, divorce, and remarriage by pulling out just one passage? You can't do that. You shouldn't do that. Okay? You take what Jesus said. He said things in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Mark 10. Then we have to pick up 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Then you have to go to Romans chapter 7. Every one of those texts talks about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so to come with a biblical position, how many of those passages should you study? Every one of them. If you stay in Mark only and, stay, and only have Mark, you have no clause about the exception clause. Okay? And that means then you're, you're ignoring what other passages and, and the, uh, are saying. And you ha- can't, you have to, if we're going to study Scripture, we have to compare Scripture with Scripture and be honest that we deal with all passages. Let me give you a doctrinal one that this happens all the time. I've used this for an illustration. People will run to the book of Acts. It's very popular amongst our brothers and sisters who are in the charismatic Pentecostal movement. They run to the book of Acts and they grab Acts chapter 2. And they run rampant with Acts chapter 2 all about tongues. And they run with it. Okay? And so they say, if it happened in the book of Acts, it must be valid today. Okay? I I agree the book, book of Acts has application for today, don't you? Okay, it's valid. It's church age. But wasn't there more commentary on tongues given later on? There's a whole chapter, uh, three chapters given of it in 1 Corinthians. And so if you're going to deal with that topic, you can't just run and say, well, if it happened in the book of Acts, then it must be good for today. Wait a minute. In the book, of, in, in progressive revelation, in more explanation of it, yes, staircases like progressive revelation, he gave some very clear details about tongues. And in those details, he said that what gender is not supposed to speak tongues? The women are not supposed to speak tongues. In a service, how many? Two or three at the most. How many spoke in Acts chapter 2? Twelve. It's not the same thing. Why? He put, as time went on, he put restrictions, right? In Acts chapter uh, 2, how many spoke at the same time? All of them. In in 1 Corinthians 7, how are the two or three, how are they, one, two or three, how are they supposed to speak? 
one at a time. So as time goes on, he gives editorial comment or explanation. We have to take that into account. When we say, okay, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, we understand Genesis chapter 2. We understand that. That was what he desired, he designed. But he gave further explanation to it, and we need to, with all honesty and integrity, take the complete study of those passages, put them together, and come with a biblical conclusion. That is, not one that is where we want to be, or what we think, but rather, here's what God's Word says, and maybe it says something that I'm not comfortable with, but this is what it says. And so be honest by studying the entire uh, text. That goes, with, um, that goes with a lot of topics. That goes with disciplining kids. It goes with church function. It goes with a whole series of issues. Let, let me make another comment here that's very important. Do not let pressure from critics of Christianity get you to adopt a weaker view than what the Bible says. I don't know about you, but do you ever, you know, I do. I feel pressure at times on positions. Do you? On positions like, the gay and lesbian issue. Did anybody feel any pressure from society? From co-workers? From family? Because I've been told, I don't know about you, I've been told several times lately that I am an unloving person. Okay? And that I'm promoting hate. Um, it's not hate crimes. What is it? Um, a, a intolerance. You know, and a hate attitude. That hurts. Okay? I, I'm, I'm not thick-skinned like some, some of you. It's, oh, I don't care. Okay. I do care what people think in that regard. And, and yet, I know what the Scripture says, and this is what we have to believe. Okay, and here's where we should be on this issue. But is it easy to, believe, to be here on this issue? No. And by the way, let's take the one that I mentioned before. Abortion. Is abortion wrong? And then people will start bringing up, but what about... Okay, is that a pressure-filled discussion then that you can get into? And it does. You guys know what I mean. You ought not to let society's permissive view of divorce and remarriage impact our position or practice as individuals or as a church. This is really hard to do. This is really hard to do because there's a lot of godly people who have this in their background, yes? So we have to address that. We have to deal with that. And so we want to come back. We ought to be persuaded, not by popular opinions, but what does God's word say? Let's pick up next week.